Really? I got a, um, about 10 seconds after I sent out that email kind of talking about the spring picnic, I got a text from a friend um, wondering about the back sale that we were doing. Um, evidently, there was a typo. So just as clarification, we, are no, we will not be selling backs uh, at the picnic, even though I know probably I'd get some takers on that one. Um, the, the kids will be having a bake sale, so they will be selling sweets and goodies in order to raise some money to go to camp. Well, we are uh, in the second week now of a series that we started last week, um, a series that's called The Resurrection Effect, and we're looking through John 20 and 21, where it's kind of taking a walk through seeing the resurrected Jesus and his interactions with the different people uh, along the way, his disciples, people like Mary Magdalene, who we looked at last week, and this week we see him having left the tomb and having left this interaction with Mary Magdalene, and going and finding his disciples to together and talking to them, sending them on a mission and sending them uh, with a pretty amazing set of gifts that he gives them. So if you've got a Bible with you, open it up to John chapter 20. It's also printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. I'm going to be reading verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do give you thanks for your word. It is sharp. It is powerful. It is often convicting. It is often comforting. We pray that you would do both of those things with us this morning, with our hearts, Lord, that you would convict us where we need to feel conviction, that you would comfort us, Lord, where we need to feel that comfort, and that you would remind us of the amazing mission that you have set yourself on and you have invited us into, Lord, that Jesus has come to renew all things. Thank you for letting us be a part of that. We pray now, Lord, that you would open your word to us this morning, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, that you would speak to us through your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you, um, some of you probably remember the first time that the Denny's closed. This was kind of back in the, um, in the early 80s or the late 80s. Uh, Denny's had been open, you know, 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And this one year, they finally decided we're going to give our employees a break, and they closed on Christmas Day. And now, of course, Denny's is back open on Christmas Day. It's, I think, their most popular day of the year. But back in this time, they decided we're going to give everybody a break. And the employees were really happy about that. Of course, they got to spend Christmas with their families. But it was actually really costly to Denny's because about 700 of those restaurants literally did not have locks on the doors. They had to go and install locks on the doors of the restaurants because they'd never been locked before. And so they had to, to, to spend actually a good deal of money preparing the Denny's in order that they would be closed because they were so used to being open. Wouldn't it be wonderful if actually that described the way that Christian community usually functioned? But instead, the opposite is oftentimes true. 
oftentimes we kind of just huddle together. We're so used to being closed that it actually costs a great deal. It feels like it's really painful and costly to us when we hear words that Jesus says, like in that passage that we just read, of him sending us out. When I say the word evangelism, usually people just kind of start to get really nervous. They kind of squirm in their chairs, and the Christians start to squirm in their chairs because we think, uh, evangelism, I don't like, I don't know, I don't have all the answers. What if somebody asks something I don't know? Or what if my life isn't really all together, you know? And then what if they kind of find out who I really am? Or I'm just kind of scared, and I don't have the courage to go talk to people about scary things. Or maybe, hey, isn't that supposed to be kind of a private thing that I'm supposed to only have on my, on my own? I'm not really supposed to go tell other people about my faith. Christians get all nervous about that. And people who aren't Christians get nervous about it too. If you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not really sure what you believe, then you probably also start to squirm when you hear that word evangelism, right? Because oftentimes your experience has been in a Christian treating you more like a project than like a person. Somebody who just kind of wants another notch on their belt. Another person that they can say, Yay, led somebody to Christ, told them about Jesus. That work is done, now I get to move on. And that's incredibly dehumanizing, isn't it? So I think for all of us, we start to get kind of nervous when we talk about being a part of God's mission in the world. When we talk about evangelism. When we talk about being outward facing as a church. We've used all of those terms to talk about similar things. The truth is, though... Really what we're talking about is friendship. Really what we're talking about is being able to have friends that are both Christians and non-Christians, having friends that we share our lives with deeply, that we love and pour ourselves out to, that we are emotionally and relationally and spiritually honest with. People who know who we are and they know the hope that we have within us. People that know that we love them and that we love Jesus. Now, that's hard. It's real easy to say. It's easy to kind of just lay that out there. It's hard to do. It's hard for me, and I'm supposed to be a professional at it. Okay? It was hard for these disciples. It was hard for the people that spent three full-time years of their life walking and talking with Jesus, and it was hard for them. When we open up this passage, the people who had spent the most time with Jesus are together in a room, huddled together with the doors locked because they're afraid. And Jesus comes in and he bursts in in the midst of them. We're not really even sure how. He seems to get through these locked doors and he breaks up their little huddle and he tells them, no, go. I'm sending you out. I'm sending you out to proclaim something wonderful. I am actually engaging you in my mission to renew all things, to redeem all things, to recreate all things. And friends, if we belong to Jesus, just like these disciples, we have been brought into that same mission. If Jesus has made us his own, then he has also sent us. If Jesus has shown us his grace and we are his by faith, then he he has brought us into that mission as well. So that is also our calling. We're going to talk today just about how we do that. And the first thing that we're going to talk about actually is this amazing piece that Jesus sends them out. 
But he sends them out not alone. He sends them out actually equipping them in many ways. And we're going to talk about three ways in which Jesus equips his disciples. And you're going to love this. It's so exciting because they all start with P. Isn't that wonderful? Um, I get to blame Jason Hill for that. He actually uh, showed me that they all start with P. So we're going to talk about three ways that Jesus sends out his disciples and equips them in that sending. And then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about what that means for us and how we can practically handle those things. Okay, so let's talk about those three P's. Here's the first one. It's peace. Peace, presence, and proclamation are those three. And peace is the first one. Open up and look at those first verses that we read. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. The first thing that Jesus says, the first thing out of his mouth when he appears to his disciples is peace. He says it again later. It's the second thing also that he says, peace be with you. He doesn't come with condemnation. He doesn't come in anger. He doesn't come even in starting by saying, all right, listen, you've got a job to do and here's what you need to do. He starts with the indicative, what is true, before he moves on to the imperative, what to do. And that indicative that he describes from them is peace. In the Old Testament, the word for peace is shalom. The Hebrew word is shalom. And it has this amazing depth of meaning. It really means not just the absence of conflict, which is oftentimes the way that we think about peace, but it means universal wholeness. Universal flourishing. The way that things ought to be. And we could say that the state of our world right now is in many ways the absence of shalom. It is not the way that it's supposed to be. But what Jesus is doing in the world is he is coming to repair that shalom, to put it back together, to make things the way that they're supposed to be, so that all things might flourish, so that there might be universal wholeness and flourishing. That's what we're looking forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. That is what Jesus is doing. And that is the word that he comes and he speaks to them. The very first thing is peace be with you. It's also the first thing that they hear after they have heard his last words on the cross, which was, do you remember? It is finished. They're kind of bookends here for what Jesus is doing. He has said as he hung on the cross, it is finished. I have completed this work now of atoning for sin. And now, having risen from the dead and defeated death, he comes and he proclaims to them peace. And did you see what he does right after he does that? Right after he proclaims peace to them? Look at what he says. He comes to them and he shows them his hands and his side. Why would he do that? Why would he come and show them his hands and his side? Standing in front of them, a real human, physical, there. He's got wounds. He's showing them they can actually put their hands on his skin. I don't know if they're fresh or if they're scars or what, but they can actually see them and feel them. And he shows them his wounds. And it's not simply just a proof of who he is, although it is that. But friends, the proclamation of peace and the wounds, they go together. They go hand in hand. Okay, you cannot have peace without a wounded Jesus. It's part of the deal. When Jesus says, peace be with you, and he shows them his side, and he shows them his hands, and he shows them his feet, what he is saying is, I have made peace for you by my very own blood. The prophet Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah. He says that it's actually by his wounds that we are healed. That it's the punishment that came upon him that is 
brought us peace. That it's actually by His stripes, by His wounds, that we have healing, that we have peace. And as He comes and He presents Himself to His disciples, that's exactly what He's doing. It is finished. I have taken the wounds and I have brought you peace. This is really important. It's really important for us to get right. Because every other system of religion, every other system of thought, every other philosophy, really that the world has ever known, you could categorize as as a system of do. Here are the things that you're supposed to do in order to be accepted. In order to be honored. In order to feel like you're fulfilled. In order to be loved. Whether that's a a moral code, whether that's a list of laws and requirements that you're supposed to meet, things that you're supposed to do in order then to feel like you're in, like you're accepted, like you are loved. Every other system of religion and thought really is based on that paradigm of do. It's really the way that our culture works too, right? We reward the people who achieve the most. And that is the way that we oftentimes think of the way that God is going to love us as if we achieve. But think about it this way. What if you haven't really done it all? What if you maybe only did kind of part of it? What if, what if you didn't know all the rules? What if you haven't fulfilled them perfectly? What if you haven't done it every day? What if you haven't just almost kind of fulfilled things? Do you see how it just breeds this insecurity in us? There's always this kind of wondering of like, maybe I didn't actually do it all and so I won't be accepted. Maybe you grew up in a Christian church like this. A friend told me the other day, he spent most of his childhood kind of walking the aisle over and over and over at different camps and different special church services because there was kind of this always this understanding of like, maybe it didn't stick last time. Maybe I wasn't really, um, you know, sincere enough. And so I've got to do it again and again and again. Do you see the insecurity that that breeds? The gospel is totally different though. The gospel is not about do, but it's about done. It's about what Jesus has done. It is finished. These are my wounds. There is now peace. Not because of what we do. Because of what he has done. In fact, to become a Christian is is to transfer the trust in my system of do into Jesus' proclamation of done. That he has done it and that he has given us peace. That's what it means to be a Christian. Whether that's the first time you've ever heard that or whether you've been sitting in church pews your whole life. That's what it means to be a Christian is to continually place our trust in what Jesus has done rather than what we do. I don't want you to see this too. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? The way that the disciples start, what does John tell us? The one thing that describes them as they're huddled up in this room. They are fearful. And, I mean, let's cut them some slack. Their leader was just assassinated, and they're following him. They're probably next, okay? So they've got reason to be afraid, but they are fearful. And then Jesus comes, and he speaks peace to them, and John tells us right after that in verse 20, what does he say? They rejoiced. (laughs) Jesus' peace has actually turned their fear into joy. They were glad when they saw the Lord. Their fear has actually been turned into joy. That's true for us as well. When we transfer that trust to Jesus and what he has done, then that fear that we have, even that fear of being part of his mission in the world, can actually be transferred into joy. Jesus sends out his disciples, he sends us out to do so with his peace. Given his peace, given the proclamation and the joyful proclamation of his peace. That's the first thing. 
Here's the second one. He also, as he sends us out, sends us out not alone, but sends us with his presence. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 21. Jesus says to them, again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says he calls his disciples to go out into the world to, to, to speak the good news to their friends and their neighbors, to be part of his mission in the world. He sends them with his presence, with the presence of the Holy Spirit, to be among them, to guide them, to empower them. I don't know how to sail. I don't know if any of you know how to sail. But I would think, you know, I could potentially learn how. And I would maybe get a book about sailing and I'd read all about how to do it and I'd, you know, get everything kind of all right on the deck and you get the sail right and it's rolled up right and you got, you know, all those ropes and stuff. And I'm just picturing myself, you know, on the lake and you're out there and everything is beautiful and pristine and, you know, children have those orange, you know, life jackets on and, um, and everybody's ready. And you hoist the sail up and everything's been done right. You've checked off all the boxes. But the one thing that's really important when you're sailing is what? It's wind. The wind is actually the power that moves the boat. That's the way that the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the power that is at work, that as we are called to take part in Jesus' mission, it's actually the Spirit's power at work in the world that is the most important thing. I mean, think about sailing. Like, if it's windy, you could, you could throw a sheet up or a blanket and, you, and the boat's going to move, right? The wind is what is the most important. One of the most fundamental things that we believe here is that God is actually at work in the world. That the Spirit is at work in the world. That's why, it's why we're planting a church. It's not because we have the power to do it. It's not because we're so great. It's because we think Jesus is actually at work. We think the Spirit is at work and we want to join in on that. Friends, that is the power that we have as we are sent out, as Jesus is, uh, as we are commissioned even to go out as his uh, sent ones, as his little Christs, as his Christians. Jesus says here that even as the Father has sent me, that he is sending us. But we go not alone. We go with the power of the Spirit to move, to guide, to change hearts, to open eyes. It is certainly good to figure out how to sail. It is certainly good to figure out even, you know, what it looks like to move close to somebody else and to speak words of truth to them. But none of it is going to happen without the Spirit being at work. That's the second P, the presence of Jesus with us. Here's the third one, is that he sends us out, he sends his disciples and us out with a proclamation, with something to proclaim. Look at verse 23 again. Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus in verse 23 here is authorizing his disciples to proclaim the greatest news that they've ever heard. To proclaim that there is forgiveness for sin. And to proclaim the flip side of that too, that when, that there is no forgiveness outside of Christ. That we are called to be those who fall on our knees before Jesus and beg for his forgiveness. And always, always, always he loves to do it. He loves to forgive us. He loves to love us. But when we don't, we still remain in our sins. 
it looks, on first glance, when I first read this, I thought, man, this is weird. Like, Jesus seems like he's actually giving his disciples power to go and, t- you know, touch people and forgive them their sins. All of the commentators I read so that said, no, that's not the case. It looks like it at first. What Jesus is actually doing is not giving them the power to forgive sins. He is giving them the power to proclaim forgiveness of sins. He is authorizing them to be his messengers in the world to proclaim this amazing news that there's forgiveness now for sin. And as we are sent by God on his mission, as we take part in moving toward others, that's the message that we have to proclaim. And let me just say this. You have friends who need to hear that there's forgiveness for sin. You have friends who are carrying amazing weights on their shoulders of thoughts or actions of activities in their life that is weighing deeply on them and they think there's no possible way I could be forgiven for this. And so they don't even deal with it. They either bury it and they try to run away and they try to pretend or they just turn kind of to cynicism and despair because they don't think that there's anybody that can carry that kind of load. Friends, we have a wonderful message to be able to give them. That there is forgiveness for sin. That there is no one so bad that they cannot come and be completely cleansed by Jesus. That is an incredible message that we get to proclaim to the people that we love. We also have friends that that need to hear us say, you've got to move toward Christ. You've got to come and fall on your knees before him. There is forgiveness and you actually need it. That is the message that we have been empowered to give, to proclaim to those around us. Jesus, just like he did with his disciples here in John 20, has called us to be part of his mission in the world, has sent us out with his peace, with his presence, with his proclamation of forgiveness, to go out and to be part of his mission in renewing all things. So how do we do it? Let's talk a little more practically now. What does it look like, really, to be part of that mission? Well, we said this at the beginning, and it's really easy to say, but we'll say it again. Really what it takes is us having friends who we are relationally and emotionally and spiritually honest with. Friends who are Christians, friends who are not Christians, that we share our lives with. That we pour ourselves out toward, that we love and that we serve, and who also know who we are, who know that we love Jesus and they know our faith. In our leadership training time last week, we were actually um, watching some teaching by a pastor named Tim Keller in New York City. And he was describing three types of people that he saw in New York City in his church. He would say there's this first type, and they've got lots of Christian friends and they've got lots of non-Christian friends. But really, most of the depth of their friendship, anytime they're ever talking about spiritual things, anytime they're ever kind of mentioning the most important thing in their life, their faith, they're only talking about it with their Christian friends. And so, the only people who really know who they are, at the full depth of who they are, the only people who, who know who they are as belonging to Christ are their Christian friends. they got lots of non-Christian friends, but they don't know them. That's group one. Group two are people who have these really great deep Christian friendships. They also pour themselves out to these Christian friends. They share their life together, but they just don't really have many non-Christian friends at all. Same outcome, right? All of the real relational honesty is, is in these Christian friends. And in group three, group three are, are the folks who actually had both Christian friends and non-Christian friends, and they were relationally honest with all of them. 
Their non-Christian friends knew exactly who they were. They knew the hope that was within them. They knew their love for Christ and what Jesus had done for them. And that's just who they were with everybody. Again, that's a hard place to be. That is where we are called to, but it's difficult. If you're trying to kind of figure out maybe um, where am I in this paradigm, I think this is a helpful question. This is a, is a difficult and penetrating question. I, I was listening to a sermon this week, and the preacher basically said this. He said, when the people that you have known for a year or more, when your friends, when they hear you speak, what, what are the echoes that they get? Do they get in your speech and in your life, do they get the music of the gospel? Do they get the music of hope of something that's not in this world? Do they get the music of the hope and the resurrection? Is that what they get, those echoes? Or would they say that you hope in many of the same things they do? Whatever next political candidate is up. The amount of money in your bank account. Your children's activities. How you're doing at work. Are those the things that if somebody spends a lot of time with you, are those the echoes that they get? That was a hard question because I did not like the answer that I came up with. It was a very penetrating question for me. That's the hard part. We've got to reflect on that. Let me give you a little bit of a fun part too though. Okay? Because this is where I get to brag on you a little bit. This kind of stuff is happening all the time in our church in really, really fun ways. I have to tell you that um, just in the last week, I've talked to two women in our church who have decided that they were going to throw block parties in their neighborhood. And they were going to invite their Christian friends, they were going to invite their non-Christian friends, and they were going to do it just so that they could get people together. Just so that they could introduce their friends to their friends. And that maybe hurting people might show up and they might have the opportunity to draw close to them. This is, by the way, a very biblical concept. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, he records uh, the, the calling and the conversion of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, and Jesus came to him, and Jesus saved him, and he called him to follow him. And you know what the first thing that Matthew does after he's converted? He throws a party. He throws a party, and he invites all of his tax collector friends, and he invites Jesus. Because he just wants them to be together. A very biblical kind of concept. So exciting that that's happening in our church. Just last week, I talked to one of our small group leaders who invited their neighbors across the street to come and join them in their small group, and they did. Many times I've had conversations with many of you who have said, hey, we're inviting our friends to come to church, and they've come. I talked to a couple in this church, a family who was telling me about the story of of when they lived out of state and this amazing community that they developed in their neighborhood where because they were so close in their neighborhood, because they simply just shared their lives together, that one of the families in their neighborhood came to know Jesus just through their love for each other. I heard a story not too long ago about two men who over the course of a year or two played a lot of golf together. We could stop it right there and it'd probably still be a pretty good story. And through these conversations on the golf course, they just started talking slowly and more and more about who Jesus was. And one of those men came to faith through those conversations on the golf course. Both of those men are in our church now. These are wonderful things that are happening. These are things that make me so excited to see the Lord actually working in our midst. To see the Spirit truly moving in you and among you. If you needed evidence that the Spirit is at work, there it is, right there. Good things are happening. There's your encouragement. I'm going to close with this. And it's homework, okay? So this is, you're going to have some homework today. And we can do some of it during, uh, during the service here. I know it's always nice when you get homework that you can do during class. But here's what I want you to think about. 
Think about three friends of yours. Three people that come to your mind, preferably three people where you're not really sure where they stand with Jesus, and then begin to pray, commit to pray for these people in these ways. Pray that God would draw you closer together in friendship. Friendship is a good, wonderful, biblical thing. If you simply prayed for that, it would be a good thing to pray for. Pray for good friendship with those people. Pray, secondly, that God would allow you to be relationally and emotionally and spiritually honest with them. That might take some courage. It might take more courage even that you have shown in the past. But pray that God would enable you to do that, to simply just be more honest about who you are. And then third, pray that God would open up windows of opportunity, that there might be meaningful conversations that take place. That meaningful conversation may be, I actually need to tell you about growing up and the difficulty I had with my father. That meaningful conversation may be, I need to tell you actually that I've been drinking too much lately. Or that meaningful conversation might be, I'm not really sure what happens to people when they die. Or The truth is, when you start talking about security, I have none of it. I'm totally insecure. Pray that God would open up those meaningful conversations and that you might be able to then speak in beautiful and fruitful and gentle and tender ways the beauty of the gospel. The peace that comes in knowing Christ. The presence of the Spirit at work in our lives. And the amazing story of forgiveness that's given to us. Let's pray about those things now and then we'll spend a little time reflecting on it. Our Father, we do first of all thank you that um, as we read this passage, as we see Jesus send out his disciples, we've got to first of all stop and think, wow, it is amazing that we're sitting here 2,000 years later across a different continent talking about these things. Your mission has gone forward. This proclamation actually has moved out and it's reached us. We're so thankful for that. And Lord, now will you enable us to be those who go out, who don't huddle together in locked doors in fear, but simply move toward others, move toward our neighbors and our friends, move toward them emotionally and relationally and spiritually in honesty. Will you enable us to do that even now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.